Section 25 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1F, Section 25, Chapter 67, Part 4. One chief step which the king took towards gratifying and appeasing his people and parliament was desiring the duke to withdraw beyond sea, that no further suspicion might remain of the influence of popish councils. The duke readily complied, but first required an order for that purpose signed by the king, lest his absenting himself should be interpreted as a proof of fear or of guilt. He also desired that his brother should satisfy him, as well as the public, by a declaration of the illegitimacy of the Duke of Monmouth. James, Duke of Monmouth, was the king's natural son by Lucy Walters, and born about ten years before the Restoration. He possessed all the qualities which could engage the affections of the populace, a distinguished valor, an affable address, a thoughtless generosity, a graceful person. He rose still higher in the public favor by reason of the universal hatred to which the duke, on account of his religion, was exposed. Monmouth's capacity was mean, his temper pliant, so that, notwithstanding his great popularity, he had never been dangerous had not he implicitly resigned himself to the guidance of Shaftesbury, a man of such restless temper, such subtle wit, and such abandoned principles. That daring politician had flattered Monmouth with the hopes of succeeding to the crown. The story of a contract of marriage, passed between the king and Monmouth's mother, and secretly kept in a certain black box, had been industriously spread abroad, and was greedily received by the multitude. As the horrors of popery still pressed harder on them, they might be induced either to adopt that fiction, as they had already done many others more incredible, or to commit open violation on the right of succession. And it would not be difficult, it was hoped, to persuade the king, who was extremely fond of his son, to give him the preference above a brother, who, by his imprudent bigotry, had involved him in such inextricable difficulties. But Charles, in order to cut off all such expectations, as well as to remove the duke's apprehensions, took care, in full counsel, to make a declaration of Monmouth's illegitimacy, and to deny all promise of marriage with his mother. The duke, being gratified in so reasonable a request, willingly complied with the king's desire, and retired to Brussels. But the king soon found that, notwithstanding this precaution, notwithstanding his concurrence in the prosecution of the popish plot, notwithstanding the zeal which he expressed, and even at this time exercised against the Catholics, he had nowise obtained the confidence of his Parliament. The refractory humor of the lower house appeared in the first step which they took upon their assembling. It had ever been usual for the commons, in the election of their speaker, to consult the inclinations of the sovereign. And even the long parliament, in 1641, 
had not thought proper to depart from so established a custom the king now desired that the choice should fall on sir thomas Maris, but seymour speaker to the last parliament was instantly called to the chair by a vote which seemed unanimous the king when seymour was presented to him for his approbation rejected him and ordered the commons to proceed to a new choice a great flame was excited the commons maintained that the king's approbation was merely a matter of form and that he could not without giving a reason reject the speaker chosen the king that since he had the power of rejecting he might if he pleased keep the reason in his own breast as the question had never before been started it might seem difficult to find principles upon which it could be decided by way of compromise it was agreed to set aside both candidates gregory a lawyer was chosen and the election was ratified by the king it has ever since been understood that the choice of the speaker lies in the house but that the king retains the power of rejecting any person disagreeable to him seymour was deemed a great enemy to danby and it was the influence of that nobleman as commonly supposed which had engaged the king to enter into this ill-timed controversy with the commons the impeachment therefore of danby was on that account the sooner revived and it was maintained by the commons that notwithstanding the intervening dissolution every part of that proceeding stood in the same condition in which it had been left by the last parliament a pretension which though unusual seems tacitly to have been yielded them the king had beforehand had the precaution to grant a pardon to danby and in order to screen the chancellor from all attacks by the commons he had taken the great seal into his own hands and had himself affixed it to the parchment he told the parliament that as danby had acted in everything by his orders he was in no respect criminal that his pardon however he would insist upon and if it should be found anywise defective in form he would renew it again and again till it should be rendered entirely complete but that he was resolved to deprive him of all employments and to remove him from court the commons were nowise satisfied with this concession they pretended that no pardon of the crown could be pleaded in bar of an impeachment by the commons the prerogative of mercy had hitherto been understood to be altogether unlimited in the king and this pretension of the commons it must be confessed was entirely new it was however not unsuitable to the genius of a monarchy strictly limited where the king's ministers are supposed to be for ever accountable to national assemblies even for such abuses of power as they may commit by orders from their master the present emergence while the nation was so highly inflamed was the proper time for pushing such popular claims and the commons failed not to avail themselves of this advantage they still insisted on the impeachment of danby the peers in compliance with them departed from their former scruples and ordered danby to be taken into custody danby absconded the commons passed a bill appointing him to surrender himself before a certain day or in default of it attainting him a bill had passed in the upper house mitigating the penalty to banishment but after some conferences 
the peers thought proper to yield to the violence of the commons and the bill of attainder was carried rather than undergo such severe penalties danby appeared and was immediately committed to the tower while a protestant nobleman met with such violent prosecution it was not likely that the catholics would be overlooked by the zealous commons the credit of the popish plot still stood upon the oaths of a few infamous witnesses though such immense preparations were supposed to have been made in the very bowels of the kingdom no traces of them after the most rigorous inquiry had as yet appeared though so many thousands both abroad and at home had been engaged in the dreadful secret neither hope nor fear nor remorse nor levity nor suspicions nor private resentment had engaged any one to confirm the evidence though the catholics particularly the jesuits were represented as guilty of the utmost indiscretion insomuch that they talked of the king's murder as common news and wrote of it in plain terms by the common post yet among the great number of letters seized no one contained any part of so complicated a conspiracy though the informers pretended that even after they had resolved to betray the secret many treasonable commissions and papers had passed through their hands they had not had the precaution to keep any one of them in order to fortify their evidence but all these difficulties and a thousand more were not found too hard of digestion by the nation and parliament the prosecution and further discovery of the plot were still the object of general concern the commons voted that if the king should come to an untimely end they would revenge his death upon the papists not reflecting that this sect were not his only enemies they promised rewards to new discoverers not considering the danger which they incurred of granting bribes to perjury they made bedloe a present of five hundred pounds and particularly recommended the care of his safety to the duke of monmouth colonel sackville a member having in a private company spoken opprobriously of those who affirmed that there was any plot was expelled the house the peers gave power to their committees to send for and examine such as would maintain the innocence of those who had been condemned for the plot a pamphlet having been published to discredit the informers and to vindicate the catholic lords in the tower these lords were required to discover the author and thereby to expose their own advocate to prosecution and both houses concurred in renewing the former vote that the papist had undoubtedly entered into a horrid and treasonable conspiracy against the king the state and the protestant religion it must be owned that this extreme violence in prosecution of so absurd an imposture disgraces the noble cause of liberty in which the parliament was engaged we may even conclude from such impatience of contradiction that the prosecutors themselves retained a secret suspicion that the general belief was but ill-grounded the politicians among them were afraid to let in light lest it might put an end to so useful a delusion the weaker and less dishonest party took care by turning their eyes aside not to see a truth so opposite to those furious passions by which they were actuated and in which they were determined obstinately to persevere 
Sir William Temple had lately been recalled from his foreign employments, and the king, who after the removal of Danby had no one with whom he could so much as discourse with freedom of public affairs, was resolved, upon Coventry's dismission, to make him one of his secretaries of state. But that philosophical patriot, too little interested in the intrigues of a court, too full of spleen and delicacy for the noisy turbulence of popular assemblies, was alarmed at the universal discontents and jealousies which prevailed, and was determined to make his retreat as soon as possible from a scene which threatened such confusion. Meanwhile he could not refuse the confidence with which his master honored him, and he resolved to employ it to the public service. He represented to the king that, as the jealousies of the nation were extreme, it was necessary to cure them by some new remedy, and to restore that mutual confidence so requisite for the safety both of king and people, that to refuse everything to the Parliament in their present disposition, or to yield everything, was equally dangerous to the Constitution as well as to public tranquillity that if the king would introduce into his councils such men as enjoyed the confidence of his people, fewer concessions would probably be required, or if unreasonable demands were made, the king, under the sanction of such councillors, might be enabled, with greater safety, to refuse them, and that the heads of the popular party, being gratified with the king's favor, would probably abate of that violence by which they endeavored at present to pay court to the multitude. The king assented to these reasons, and, in concert with Temple, he laid the plan of a new privy council, without whose advice he declared himself determined for the future to take no measure of importance. This council was to consist of thirty persons, and was never to exceed that number, fifteen of the chief officers of the crown were to be continued who it was supposed would adhere to the king and in case of any extremity oppose the exorbitancies of faction the other half of the council was to be composed either of men of character detached from the court or of those who possessed chief credit in both houses and the king in filling up the names of his new council was well pleased to find that the members in land and offices possessed to the amount of three hundred thousand pounds a year a sum nearly equal to the whole property of the house of commons against whose violence the new council was intended as a barrier to the throne this experiment was tried and seemed at first to give some satisfaction to the public the earl of essex a nobleman of the popular party son of the lord capel who had been beheaded a little after the late king, was created treasurer in the room of Danby. The Earl of Sunderland, a man of intrigue and capacity, was made Secretary of State. Viscount Halifax, a fine genius, possessed of learning, eloquence, industry, but subject to inquietude and fond of refinements, was admitted into the council. These three, together with Temple, who often joined them, though he kept himself more detached from public business, formed a kind of cabinet council from which all affairs received their first digestion. Shaftesbury was made president of the council, contrary to the advice of Temple, who foretold the consequences of admitting a man of so dangerous a character into any part of the public administration. 
As Temple foresaw, it happened. Shaftesbury, finding that he possessed no more than the appearance of court favor, was resolved still to adhere to the popular party, by whose attachment he enjoyed an undisputed superiority in the lower house, and possessed great influence in the other. The very appearance of court favor, empty as it was, tended to render him more dangerous. His partisans, observing the progress which he had already made, hoped that he would soon acquire the entire ascendant, and he constantly flattered them that if they persisted in their purpose, the king, from indolence and necessity and fondness for Monmouth, would at last be induced, even at the expense of his brother's right, to make them every concession. Besides the antipathy to popery, as well as jealousy of the king and duke, had taken too fast possession of men's minds to be removed by so feeble a remedy as this new council projected by Temple. The commons, soon after the establishment of that council, proceeded so far as to vote unanimously that the Duke of York's being a papist, and the hopes of his coming to the crown, had given the highest countenance to the present conspiracies and designs of the papist against the king and the Protestant religion. It was expected that a bill for excluding him from the throne would soon be brought in. To prevent this bold measure, the king concerted some limitations, which he proposed to the Parliament. He introduced his plan by the following gracious expressions. And to show you that, while you are doing your parts, my thoughts have not been misemployed, but that it is my constant care to do everything that may preserve your religion and secure if for the future in all events. I have commanded my Lord Chancellor to mention several particulars, which, I hope, will be an evidence that, in all things which concern the public rights, I shall not follow your zeal, but lead it. The limitations projected were of the utmost importance, and deprived the successor of the chief branches of royalty. A method was there chalked out, by which the nation, on every new reign, could be ensured of having a parliament which the king should not, for a certain time, have it in his power to dissolve. In case of a popish successor, the prince was to forfeit the right of conferring any ecclesiastical preferments. No member of the privy council, no judge of the common law or in chancery, was to be put in or displaced but by common consent of Parliament. And the same precaution was extended to the military part of the government, to the lord lieutenants and deputy lieutenants of the counties, and to all officers of the navy. The chancellor of himself added, It is hard to invent another restraint considering how much the revenue will depend upon the consent of Parliament, and how impossible it is to raise money without such consent. But yet, if anything else can occur to the wisdom of Parliament, which may further secure religion and liberty against a popish successor, without defeating the right of succession itself, His Majesty will readily consent to it." It is remarkable that, when these limitations were first laid before the council, Shaftesbury and Temple were the only members who argued against them. The reasons which they employed were diametrically opposite. 
Shaftesbury's opinion was that the restraints were insufficient, and that nothing but the total exclusion of the duke could give a proper security to the kingdom. Temple, on the other hand, thought that the restraints were so rigorous as even to subvert the constitution, and that shackles put upon a popish successor would not afterwards be easily cast off by a protestant. It is certain that the duke was extremely alarmed when he heard of this step taken by the king, and that he was better pleased even with the bill of exclusion itself, which he thought, by reason of its violence and injustice, could never possibly be carried into execution. There is also reason to believe that the king would not have gone so far had he not expected, from the extreme fury of the commons, that his concessions would be rejected, and that the blame of not forming a reasonable accommodation would by that means lie entirely at their door. It soon appeared that Charles had entertained a just opinion of the dispositions of the house. So much were the commons actuated by the cabals of Shaftesbury and other malcontents, such violent antipathy prevailed against popery, that the king's concessions, though much more important than could reasonably have been expected, were not embraced. A bill was brought in for the total exclusion of the duke from the crown of England and Ireland. It was there declared that the sovereignty of these kingdoms, upon the king's death or resignation, should devolve to the person next in succession after the duke, that all acts of royalty which that prince should afterwards perform should not only be void, but be deemed treason, that if he so much as entered any of these dominions, he should be deemed guilty of the same offence, and that all who supported his title should be punished as rebels and traitors. This important bill, which implied banishment as well as exclusion, passed the lower house by a majority of seventy-nine. The commons were not so wholly employed about the exclusion bill as to overlook all other securities to liberty. The country party, during all the last Parliament, had much exclaimed against the bribery and corruption of the members, and the same reproach had been renewed against the present Parliament. An inquiry was made into a complaint which was so dangerous to the honour of that assembly, but very little foundation was found for it. Sir Stephen Fox, who was the paymaster, confessed to the House that nine members received pensions to the amount of three thousand four hundred pounds, and after a rigorous inquiry by a secret committee, eight more pensioners were discovered. A sum also about twelve thousand pounds had been occasionally given or lent to others. The writers of that age pretend that Clifford and Danby had adopted opposite maxims with regard to pecuniary influence. The former endeavored to gain the leaders and orators of the house, and deemed the others of no consequence. The latter thought it sufficient to gain the majority, however composed. It is likely that the means, rather than the intention, were wanting to both these ministers. Pensions and bribes, though it be difficult entirely to exclude them, are dangerous expedients for government, and cannot be too carefully guarded against, nor too vehemently decried by every one who has regard to the virtue and liberty of a nation. The influence, however, which the crown acquires from the disposal of places, honors, and preferments, is to be esteemed of a different nature. 
this engine of power may become too forcible but it cannot altogether be abolished without the total destruction of monarchy and even of all regular authority but the commons at this time were so jealous of the crown that they brought in a bill which was twice read excluding from the lower house all who possessed any lucrative office end of section twenty five chapter sixty seven part four recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com